Hello, it's Friday, 29th of October. I'm Gary Bowerman. On today's show, I'll be chatting all things travel and tourism in Australia with Melbourne-based Simon Westerway. So, let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So, today's show is part three of our Destination 2022 series, which assesses the current outlook in potential hot ticket destinations for Southeast Asian travelers as borders finally start to reopen across Asia Pacific. And where better to head to than Australia, which is likely to be a priority pick for vacations, family visits, and business trips in the coming months. I'm delighted to say that joining me today is Melbourne-based Simon Westaway, who is Strategy Director at Royce Communications and recently completed a two-year spell as Executive Director of the Australian Tourism Industry Council. Simon was first on the show last December, which still remains to this day the most downloaded episode in the history of the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Simon also returned to the show in March this year. So Simon, thanks for coming back onto the show. How are you doing today? And what's it like to be in Melbourne heading into what is a pretty important weekend? Oh, it's a pleasure, Gary. We had uh, a huge storm here last night, but what's really been quite uh, interesting is uh, today from 6pm local time, in essence, we get our our true freedoms back in terms of gathering uh, both at home and in uh, in, in commercial facilities and the like. We've got this weekend, normally traditionally is the biggest weekend of the year. It's the uh, spring racing carnival here, but uh, they're only allowing 5,000 people in on each day of that four-day carnival from tomorrow. But uh, a lot of people doing picnics and other things and trying to, I guess, sort of simulate what, what would normally be Melbourne at this time of year. But uh, yeah, look, it's a um, pleasure to come back on the program. Is so much going on, isn't there? And, uh, you know, Australia has probably ridden the COVID wave better than most, although there's a lot of nuances in our market and nuances in the way we've gone about things. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how the, our travel market settles down. It's an important sector, as we've talked about before. It's one of our largest um, you know, economic drivers in the country and uh, we had a thriving both domestic as well as international um, sector previous to the uh, you know, insidious coronavirus. Yeah, I would say definitely Australia. There's a lot of buzz here in the region about Australia. <clears throat> a lot of the travellers are looking forward to being able to get back to Australia. And obviously a lot of countries here are hoping to welcome Australians, tourism and business travellers in, in the coming months. Um, but first up, Simon, last December on the show, you predicted that there would be a two-way travel bubble between Australia and New Zealand in April 2021. And then in March this year, you forecast there would be a travel agreement between Australia and Singapore. So what has your crystal ball got for us today? Well, thank you. I, was, I guess I was pretty close to the money on those two ones. I mean, they were, they were, in one way, they were logical, but in another way, I guess in terms of the engagement we've been having with federal authorities uh, in an ATIC perspective, um, you know, we had a bit of a bit of a handle of where things were moving. I think it's going to be very, 2022 is going to be very, very interesting. Obviously, we've got the back end of 2021 to go. I think the key prediction that I probably put out there is that we're going to see Australian really travel in an outbound sense in really strong numbers and uh, we've already seen Qantas report you know really strong demand for the services that they've brought forward to meet the uh, you know the reopening of our of our borders um, you know we have a two or three phase border reopening approach with the way our states and territories operate here within our fractured federation as I've often now called it as many others do um, you know we'll have a little bit of a stop start in terms of getting things moving but the, importantly from where the major population centers of the eastern seaboard sit uh, it's really all ready to go from um, uh, 1st of November and by Christmas, which a lot of politicians here are trying to use as the marker for true reopening. 
you're going to see a lot of lot of people movement occurring again, um, both domestically, internally within within our country, be it you know drive drive trips, um, overnight stays, interstate travel, but internationally, um, it's all about I think Australians moving again to and from the country, and uh, you know the federal government here is saying that they will start to welcome back some international visitors around Christmas time. So. I think 2022 beckons is a really interesting year um, after we've had a lot of challenges. Uh, and of course, Australia's not, not alone here in terms of the last two years. Okay, so it's great to hear that the buzz is back, Simon. We're all looking forward to Australia reopening its borders for inbound and outbound travel. But let's take a look back. Let's go back through the pandemic and actually over the last couple of years, because before the pandemic, of course, you had the devastating Black Summer fires that rolled straight into COVID-19. So what would you say has been the aggregate impact on Australia's travel sector? of those two major events. Absolutely unprecedented. There was two black swan events um, and you know, normally one would be bad enough, but having one directly flow into the other, has, you know, it's impacted the industry collectively by around about $120 billion in overall economic impact. Um, that's what the federal government figures are saying. I mean, anecdotally, industry, private industry was saying at one stage we were rolling between 8 to $10 billion of loss a month. On any on any measure, the, the the overall visitor economy, which is around about our fifth largest economic sector in Australia, plummeted by over half in value inside six months. Tens and thousands of businesses um, not just closed but haven't reopened. Yeah, we've seen overall probably about the workforce almost halve. Um, a lot of that was a casualised workforce, but nonetheless, you've just seen this sort of devastating impact. The fires themselves probably was around about a $10 billion impact. Um, you know, Tourism Australia put some really interesting figures out soon after that said that the brand impact of the, of the bushfires, which were absolutely horrendous in that international market, and I was actually overseas during part of it, so saw it firsthand, the coverage, there was sort of this one curious sort of imagery of uh, Uluru being on fire. This is how sort of over the top the coverage got at times. If you then you rolled into literally two weeks after um, the sort of the fires were dissipating, we were full full blown into the response to COVID, which I think Australians started to wake up the moment that Chinese visitors, Chinese nationals were refused entry to, into our country in February last year. And then in essence, the country was closed in about six weeks. So as I referenced in the intro there, Simon, you've just completed a two-year stint as Executive Director at the Australian Tourism Industry Council, which spanned much of that period that we've just been talking about. I mean, how do you look back on your time in that role? Yeah, well, look, it's really interesting. Um, I, thought as, I thought in a way we, we took advantage of, of crisis. And as they say in the say, you know, I guess the, uh, the chapters of uh, advocacy, you never, never waste a good crisis to try to advocate for better outcomes. And in, in some respects, I think we've achieved that. I mean, certainly a few things have occurred. Firstly, I think people absolutely recognise the value of tourism in Australia. If they didn't before, they certainly do now. And that broader visitor economy has tentacles, which goes right across um, the economy, particularly in both our cities, but also in our in our regions and far flung parts of the country. So that's that's a good thing. And now people talk about tourism openly in terms of um, not just an industry, but a career, but certainly an integral part of their of their region, their community. One of I guess the disappointing aspects of the overall COVID nineteen crisis has just been the inability of government, while they have collectively done some really good things to try to, to work with industry and try to get to the nub, nub of the problem. It, it's, it's taken them a while to really understand how, how tourism really works. And um, some countries have done it better than others. I think Australia probably hasn't done a bad job, but we're probably hard taskmasters. But it was, was I think, collectively and then individually as tourism leaders were spending huge amounts of time just trying to re-educate and explain what the, what the impact is 
on of, of the virus and then what it was actually doing, not just in terms of the economic impact to these businesses and communities, but just how, you know, you know the way tourism operates in terms of forward, forward bookings and the like, that just simply the fact that this was occurring and then the borders were closed and all these other measures, they weren't really factoring in what that residual impact to, to the visitor economy was. And we had a diametrically harder impact on us than almost any other. So, look, I, I look back at it on mixed emotions um, in terms of, yeah, clearly we, we achieved some real good policy wins, um, you know, shored up you know, a lot of funding for our National Tourism Authority to get on with things, some really good integration of and recognition, which will come out of the future tourism strategy about what we need to do as a country to really build our industry back. But on the flip side to that, I think you know, as an industry, we need to be better understood by, by authorities. And I think this is a struggle um, worldwide around how government does look at our industry. They don't mind taking the taxes. They probably don't look so much at um, how truly it integrates. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair point. The, the, the nuances of a travel and tourism economy really weren't understood in many countries around the world, and that's become into real stark relief everywhere, and is and still is as, as countries are looking to reopen. Um, but going back over this period, Simon, it's been a, it's been a tough period of, for Australia. Long lockdowns. You had this COVID zero approach, and these names like Fortress Australia, now would Australia ever reopen its borders? But the country is, is now looking forward. You know, things are starting to move again. People are hoping to travel. Bookings are starting to be made. And most of that is because of the vaccine program. Now, Australia's vaccine program did get off to a very slow and highly criticized start. But how do you assess the rollout as it's sort of taken over in the, in the past few months? Yeah, well, it's really a really great question. And look, the rollout did take a while to get going. There's no question it, it lacked mojo and, and lacked a lot of momentum. It was... The deliberate strategy, and I'm not making excuses for the authorities, was that they really did look at who was impacted most in terms of illness and death by COVID-19 during um, 2020 and leading into 2021. And that was our elderly Australians, um, people living in nursing homes, aged care facilities. I mean, we've, we haven't had a lot of fatalities, obviously, on a, on a global scale, but the fatalities that did occur here and the people that did get sick here, as a general rule, were in the, you know, the latter stages of their life. Um, Australians do have a commitment to our, our most elderly citizens, and I guess the policy prescription was around really, um, you know, honing in on those communities uh, and ensuring that they got absolute first access to to the vaccines. I guess the other issue has been with the mRNA vaccines. Uh, you know, we had um, AstraZeneca as our core our core vaccine. As the year last year rolled out, um, some of the medical advice was that. You know, perhaps Pfizer was a was a better option on the mRNA side to AstraZeneca. I'm not a doctor, but certainly the way that the advice was being given, it made it fairly clear that Pfizer, um, Moderna, and the like were the preferred option rather than AstraZeneca. Whilst a lot of Australians had had have received AZ as their as their there's their first and second vaccine shot, um, we we had to wait until our you know I guess our share of Pfizer came through and now Moderna. So what's occurred is that Australia is a is a nation of people that get vaccinated is in the last few months we've had a, a real clip along and uh, you know we've got 87 going on 88 percent of Australians with a first dose now and uh, three quarters of Australians 16 years and above are now fully vaccinated and we were getting around two million shots in arms a week so we're really on track to have global global leadership quite frankly uh, as we go into 2022 around having a vaccinated nation obviously ahead of um, top-ups and other and other strategies I guess as we look at you know, future variants. 
here in Malaysia as well, is that things can actually start to happen now in the travel world and in general life, simply because vaccine thresholds are starting to be hit. And that's, that's what's happening in Australia. But I think for listeners around the world, perhaps one of the most striking elements of this pandemic in terms of Australia has been the, the state situation, the state powers to shut internal borders and the disagreements between the different state premiers and the government about allowing citizens to travel between states and interstate across Australia. What's the current situation, Simon, for domestic travel between states? Well, it certainly hasn't been one voice, has it? <laughs> and it's been a fractured federation, um, a split federation is what many people have called it. And uh, not very many of us are constitutional lawyers, but uh, when our forefathers established um, the federation back in 1901, they actually outlined pretty clearly what was the what was the role of the, of the federal government or the Commonwealth and what was the role of the states and territories, which were the original colonies, um, um, obviously, you know, many, many decades before that, which then came together. I mean, what, what's occurred in essence, we've probably got about three speeds. Um, we have the eastern seaboard is where the bulk of the, the, the virus has, has basically sat um, over the course of the pandemic. Um, you sort of got your mid-tier sort of central Australia, if you like, South Australia, Northern Territory, where they haven't had lots of incidents of cases, um, but have obviously had very hard borders. Um, Tasmania, I suppose you'd sit into that category because of its um, isolation or being a step off the Australian mainland. And then the, the very well-publicised approach by uh, Western Australia and to some degree Queensland in the way that they've gone about the border the border politics. Um, you know, we've we had state election cycles which were factored into all of this and um, it became a pretty clear political strategy to be hard on borders to protect those citizens inside the lines on the map and uh, it proved to be a very successful political strategy. So incumbent governments, in essence, um, you know, solidified and strengthened their positions post-election uh, and for those advocating open borders last year was a pretty tough intellectual argument because the politics showed that you're, you're basically on the losing team. In essence, what's occurred moving forward now is that the eastern seaboard is opening up. So New South Wales, Victoria, which are the two largest states by population, uh, are open from next week. Um, there are still restrictions and uh, there's some arrangements around uh, access and travel, but um, for want of a word, they're open. Queensland will follow um, before Christmas um, and the other states will be coming online between late November uh, and, and beginning of 2022 with Western Australia an outlier, which hasn't, in effect, is the only state or territory that hasn't put in place the full plan around what reopening looks like at this point. So let's talk a little bit about domestic and interstate travel in Australia, Simon. We, we, we always tend to talk about des destinations mostly, or we did as inbound and outbound. But as we've seen during this pandemic, domestic travel in all countries around the world is so important. And particularly in Australia, because it's such a beautiful and it's such a large country, there's so much to see around the country. How important is domestic travel or was it before the pandemic and how important do you think it will be in future? Oh, domestic travel, domestic tourism in Australia is huge. Um, look, on any given day of the week, it's three quarters to 80% of our overall visitor economy. Um, it's been interesting because the trend has been moving with the strong international travel boom that's occurred um, for visitors coming to Australia in the last 10 or 15 years. It's starting to correct that to a degree. But the, the bulk of travel in Australia is domestic combination of interstate going across those borders, um, hard or not, or uh, or interstate, um, because we've got some very large states, uh, interstate travel. 
travel can make up 40, 45% of the visitor economy in a particular region or particular state themselves. So domestic, in a nutshell, is three quarters of the market. Um, that will probably stay the same. What's What's been occurring over the past five or 10 years is that pie is increasingly grown, uh, and that but that international component has been moving you know, gradually towards um, a third. Um, and in some markets, obviously, it's, it's much higher, uh, particularly in parts of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, which is where the bulk of international visitors tend to come in and spend most of their time and money. So let's look at uh, what's actually happening right now, Simon, because it is an interesting time. It's an exciting time. The buzz is back. You know, there is this idea that Australians can travel again pretty soon. But obviously, you still have these different state approaches to protecting their borders, as you've alluded to before. Australia's reopening to international travel is starting to evolve. Things are happening. Uh, declarations are being made. But, but what is the current situation? How can we understand in terms of, is it just going to be first off for returning Australians? And what about visiting uh, overseas travellers? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's at the moment, it's very much about Australians returning and for people that are in Australia, be it residents, citizens or people keen to get out of Australia to get back to their to their home country um, leaving. So at the moment, that will be the case. So from next week, um, in essence, Australians are uh, permitted to travel again. And uh, importantly, there's a seamlessness around that in terms of not having quarantine in place. Um, it will only be a home quarantine arrangement, but there's no restrictions in terms of fully vaxxed Australians being able to travel to and from. So I think that's probably the, the other key theme around here is that fully vaxxed travel is endorsed and there will not be restrictions around that. Now, depending on which part of the country you're talking about, um, those that are not vaxxed um, or from what particular region you may be coming from, um, you may have to have a level of quarantine arrangements on, on arrival. I think the key message for your international audience is that over the coming weeks, it will be about that big backlog of Australians, expats who have been based overseas needing to get home this whole elixir if you like or imagery of Christmas has been used as a bit of a carrot and um, and then there is obviously a bulk of Australians a lot of Australians who are very keen to get back out and, and travel again for both work purposes uh, visiting friends and relatives and indeed starting to be pure tourists again um, as many Southeast Asian markets know Australians are a very a very important and growing cohort in themselves so I guess that's why my prediction around um, the outbound market will be the really strong strong growing market for Australians uh, and for travel to and from Australia over the next, you know, maybe six to 12 months in many respects, um, because it's going to take some time for this international um, visitor return or key cohorts of international visitors to start coming back into our country. So for overseas visitors that want to come to Australia at the moment, wait and see, is that the advice? Well, I think it's wait and see, but I think it's going to move pretty quickly. Now, the, the Prime Minister said the other day he's had a lot on his plate, as has the government, uh, uh, you know, the machinery government's moving to Scotland for the uh, uh, the COP26 talks um, and that very important issue around you know, decarbonising the, the global economy. But uh, he has alluded that uh, the, the federal government here will make some announcements and enable some uh, international um, visitors to return to Australia before Christmas or by Christmas and that the gates... In essence, will start to open much more quickly um, beyond that. Um, there's a bit of debate here around who those visitors may be. I, I think in many ways the market will determine that rather than rather than officials, but there is a real demand for a return of international students, which has been a very big visitor cohort to our country. Uh, working holiday makers or backpackers have always been an important three to $4 billion a year sector, um, as well as obviously the inevitable return of uh, business travellers and uh, those wanting to have a, have a holiday in our country, which at the end of the day, 
today has been, I think, the real success of our tourism marketing and initiatives has been to, uh, to generally uh, attract visitors to come and do long, long through stays of two, three, four weeks into our country and experience numbers of states. Um, it'll be Eastern Seaboard focus. All the capacity will be coming in and out of Sydney and Melbourne, um, but in due course, you'll see you know, some of the other airports such as uh, Southeast Queensland and in, in time, you know, South Australia and, and Darwin will start to reopen up. But the bulk, the bulk of visitors um, that international services come in and out of Sydney and Melbourne, and that that won't change in in the short or medium term. So I guess from this part of the world, Simon, the, the obvious question is: a lot of Southeast Asian travellers love to come into Perth. They like to come to Western Australia. At the moment, that's looking the the most difficult landscape. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's it's a difficult one because it's it's been political and it's politicised. But uh, you know the. the government is, is coming under some pressure now to to outline what its plan will look like but uh, you know the, the premier has made it clear that we won't see this occur this side of um, 2021 but 2022 is another is another dawn and uh, and I'm, I'm sure in due course they will reopen there's no question about that um, but uh, you know all states and territories bar WA have a have a plan in place and have outlined key dates and what reopening looks like um, it's most seamless for for visitors um, travelers be it Australians or international visitors coming in and out of our major gateways of, of Sydney and Melbourne both of the governments have really put the foot down now to say that the doors are reopened um, but we'll see over the coming weeks and you really just got to look at the travel advisories I think just around how it looks it's it's a complicated it's a it's a patchwork quilt and um, it, it actually takes a lot just to just keep your head wrapped around just what these nuances are like for now. But by early 2022, by, you know, Q1, Q2, 2022, I would imagine our country is fully open again, um, you know, give or take how, how our vaccinated population deals with existing or future variants of the virus, which appear inevitable. So let's talk then about outbound travel, Simon. As you mentioned there, Aussies are great travellers. Uh, and outbound travel does seem to be, you know, a real focus of what's going to be happening over the coming Australian summer and, and into 2022. What are going to be the options for Australian travellers? Will there be unrestricted choices heading overseas? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I can probably be much more open about this now that I'm no longer advocating for a, um, a tourism organisation, which is all about obviously Australians spending their money in Australia, travelling and uh, to attract international visitors to our country. I mean, the outbound story has been a very exciting one for the, the, the broader travel industry out of Australia for the past 10, 15 years. Um, you know, there are more outbound movements a year than inbounds, um, which it, it goes to the strength of um, Australians being fantastic travellers. Majority of us have passports. There's a real commitment by um, families for their, their children um, to see the world and, and for people to see the world. And we're an open open economy. The whole bunch of drivers, that multicultural background that we have across our communities. But uh, you will see, I really do think we'll have very strong outbound travel. You know, you'll see airlines, the, the travel industry, whole sailors be really aggressive to get and stimulate Australians to travel. And, you know, you've got communities in Sydney, particularly in Victoria, Melbourne, where I'm from, that have, we've been locked up. I mean, we've Melbourne's had the most uh, hard days of lockdown globally over this pandemic. So you have this huge pent-up demand and just that human desire to get moving again. So that's in terms of where those markets may be. I think it'll be the traditional ones. It'll be you know, your, your, your Bali's, um, you know, that Indonesia um, offering, um, Thailand, um, 
Singapore, Malaysia, um, Japan in terms of um, you know, interesting ski travel. Uh, and China will be a very interesting one just for the obvious the complication of that that relationship at the moment. And a lot of Australians, as you're aware, Gary, do uh, go across to Europe uh, and um, there's a lot of obviously trans-Pacific travel as well. I, the numbers of destinations that were open up, it's the Singapore opportunities are really exciting one i think for all around for the trade for travelers for for people because uh, the singapore hub has always been a very nice easy option for australians and then they can use the singapore hub to get to get through to where they're going so i just see some really strong growth um i guess a lot how much of that will obviously be you know constrained somewhat by how the how coronavirus and and um and the variants um which are inevitable to be more of them how they how they impact or restrict movement if if there's flare-ups yeah particularly during the the northern hemisphere winter which we're 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 moving into right now we'll come back to singapore in a moment simon what about new zealand the trans-tasman travel bubble we've been talking about that for so long it it happened and then it sort of then it stopped what's the situation now yeah well it's a really great question um it, it happened then it stopped it opened again for a bit then it stopped it's been numerous permutations of it uh the south island was reopened because COVID 19 is is probably set itself more in the north island than the south um through through geography and population mainly centered on auckland but uh you know new zealand government this week i think put out a fairly disappointing position that uh, they don't see the bubble uh, for want of a word or the trans-tasman operations returning until early 2022 and um, there seems to be some ongoing double down at the moment just around where that trans-tasman market is going and that's you know, for the, the broader travel industry, I guess that's that's disappointing. And for for a lot of us, that's disappointing because it, it really, we were working very closely together. Um, and there seemed to be a real understanding that Australia and New Zealand needed to move as one. But, um, you know, to be fair, I mean, Australia had more incidents of COVID-19 than New Zealand and uh, those main hubs of Melbourne and Sydney, which is where the bulk of the travel moves between, as well as Southeast Queensland, which had some, some cases, has, has obviously put a stopper on it. And at the New Zealand end, they're obviously reluctant to to reopen and all that pressure valve, I guess, of, of, you know, the performance of the South Island and their ski, their ski offering and just that general, the general offering that New Zealand tourism off, um, provides, I, I guess that pressure, pressure will need to build on the New Zealand government, one would think, before we start to see a reopening occur. But it'll be sometime early next year at, at the earliest. So let's get back to Singapore, Simon. There is this new announcement of a vaccinated travel lane, which is quite a curious one, really, in many ways. Because we were talking back in March, you and I, about uh, Australia trying to attract education, getting students back from via Singapore. But this vaccinated travel lane, is it's basically a point-to-point agreement, as all Singapore's uh, vaccinated travel lanes currently are. So that really cuts out the kind of hub uh, transit destination, which Australians have always used Singapore as, as a transit into, as a gateway into Asia, into Southeast Asia, and, and then going further afield, as you said, in, into Europe and into the US, for example. So how do you think this one is going to play out? Because I would imagine Australians will be looking to get quite a lot of traffic inbound from Singapore. But at the moment, as you said, the, the priority is on outbound. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Uh, look, it's a positive. Uh, Australian visitation to Singapore as a mono destination has actually been growing um, over many years now, and that's due driven by um, you know capacity. Um, there are multiple airlines on the route, you know, both low-cost carriers, value carriers, and full-service carriers. So that's actually still stimulated that market and it is becoming a more compelling uh, mono destination offering. Um, I think you've got to walk before you can run. I think the positive thing about Singapore and Australia and what they've been trying to do, and you know, both governments, to be fair, have been pretty, been pretty strong on their word around 
they'll 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 open or meet the commitments based on on the way that the science and the way that the market can reopen in a safe and a efficient way. And I think we've just got to see how that how that evolves. Um, you know, Singapore's an important inbound market for Australian tourism. It's always set about number six. It's about number five or six on value, but number six on visitor numbers. And it is, has been a growing market and Singaporeans you know, do really embrace Australia. And again, it comes down to that, you know, good, good accessible capacity, um, segmentation in the market in terms of offering by air. And uh, airports have been very aggressive uh, in this country, as is the Changi in wanting to, to foster that growth. And Qantas have made it very clear that they see a really good future again for Singapore through their two brand strategy with Qantas and, and Jetstar. So I'm more an optimist than not, but you're spot on. I think the intricacies of, of travel will be tricky for a period and uh, it may preclude some people from the market. And um, if we're talking fully vaxxed travel, there's always that complication for younger families with you know, children below 12, which at the moment in Australia, we don't have that option of getting 12 year olds and under um, vaccinated. So there's a whole lot of nuances, but I think we've got to be upbeat about this one and be glass half full because um, it's a good way for, um, for Southeast Asia and Australia to reconnect in an effective way and um, I'm, I'm personally very positive about it. Yeah, walk before you can run. That's a great phrase because, you know, there is such a huge excitement around the region at the moment. But there, as you said there, there are so many intricacies in reopening borders, reopening flight routes, reopening the ability of people to travel again. It's going to take time for all that to shake down. But let's talk for a little bit, Simon, about the airlines because obviously Qantas has been one of the big advocates across the pandemic for, for rebooting travel for obvious reasons. Uh, and now there is some movement in terms of travel. Do you think the airlines will respond quite quickly in terms of reopening routes and frequencies? Oh, I think they will. Qantas are being, um, you know, they've, they've been cautious, measured, but at the same time, um, they've become quite aggressive because they, they can see the opportunity now. I mean, Qantas have played a very, I guess, very cool hand. You'd probably want them in your on your side in terms of a poker game. They've really played it as well as they could. Now, they've obviously, you know, one would have thought at times they must have been, you know, staring at the abyss and the amount of aircraft they had in the Mojave Desert and uh, the amount of people that they had um, off payroll or, or having to down tools during the height of the pandemic must have been very, very scary for them. But at the same time, they're our national carrier. Um, you know, they've been very committed to... Um, ensuring that they can get sustainable operations back up and running. So you've seen lots of positive noises out of Qantas and they've put their money where their mouth is and they've really outlined where their capacity is going. And some really exciting stuff too. I think that getting that direct service out of out of Sydney into India, um, that's that's potentially a game changer for that market. I mean, back in my day at Tourism Australia, we were very bullish about the Indian market and it has taken a while to take foothold in Australia, but it has every potential I don't think it'll be the next, the new China, but it certainly could be the next sort of a really fast emerging market in terms of down visitors, as well as outbound visitors, more Australians experiencing the, the delights and, and the, the rich tapestry that India India provides. And Qantas have made it really clear though, some of these core markets such as Thailand, you know, obviously the Bali offering, as well as London being the other really, really key key one. They've really outlined what they're going to do. They're putting big capacity on it. They're putting their, their, you know, their best foot forward in terms of the 380 aircraft. And uh, yeah, I, I, th I think, you know, we hope that, that, that it works for them and with their two-brand strategy is indeed the other carriers that come on and it's been really exciting to see what Cafe Pacific, Singapore Airlines, Qatar, what, what they've also said they're putting into the market. So I guess you can see there's some real enthusiasm that we could see a bit of that spurt back. The disappointing thing is we've got such a, such a big wall to climb. I mean, 
the market has collapsed by over 90% on RPKs, ASKs um, through the height of the pandemic and even more recently. So, you know, some would argue we're about 10 to 15 years behind in terms of where we should be on passenger volumes. I think we'll obviously come back much more quickly than that, but I do believe it's about a five-year recovery where we're standing unless we see some further significant game-changing event. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think across the region, looking at the the graphs and, and just how how far things have fallen, it is a long way back. But as you say, that we've got to start somewhere and this is a positive way to, to get moving forward before the end of the year. Simon, as always, it's great talking to you. It's great to get this 360 degree view about such an important market, inbound and outbound and domestic for our region. But if we take a look back over the last two years and and where we could be going in future in terms of this recovery. And what would you say are some of the key learnings that you've found from, from the way that travel and tourism and governments have responded uh, in Australia to, to what is the, the biggest disruption in our lifetimes? Yeah, I think that's a great question to, to close. I, I, there are a few key learnings. I think as an industry, from an Australian industry, we're quite segmented because there's so many different aspects to Australian tourism from the cruise, the emergent cruise sector, small business operators, um, which is, was a very you know, strong Key, key sort of focus of, of ATIC um, through to, um, you know, your bigger players, your airlines and airports and so forth. Um, we did speak collectively in one voice on a lot of issues, but perhaps we needed to be a bit more honed in on, on what, the key, what the key issues are. What's came through really reinforced, I think, to the broader tourism industry from the advocates and the players in there is that governments, you know, they can never know enough about our industry. Um, we really do need to continue to better educate them on just not just the challenges, but also the opportunities that we bring and what's what works and what doesn't. And um, it's not really about grant programs. Um, it's about what, how cash flow impact, cash flow impacts and labour force impacts and the way seasonality works and so forth. It's a very sort of, you know, very you know, well tied together sort of ecosystem. And of course, when we've had some chipping away at the edges of that, it's sort of all sort of fallen apart and it's taken a while to recover. I think there's some other interesting areas too. Um, I've done no real advocacy, um, but I do follow the cruise industry quite closely and I've, I've watched their trials and tribulations um, over the past 18 months and it's it's a real struggle. Um, you know, the, the, the concept that COVID-19 feeds and lives on cruise ships um, was front and centre in our living rooms there last year when we had a major, major incident with uh, uh, the Ruby Princess in Sydney Harbour um, with all the issues that was created out of it. But... You know, the cruise industry has got to, you know, has continues to have to do a lot of work to to convince officials that that you know that that sector can can play an important role um, moving forward. So, I think the other interesting area is just um, is is really just showing people how you can travel efficiently, effectively with all the facts and figures before you. Um, there's so much information flow going around. I think really trying to get get clear information to um to travelers um the facts um good access to to information but allow them to just absorb that um is is going to be very important moving forward and and i look at the international market in that regard a bit because a lot of media is interesting but it's not always correct and and what runs as an issue isn't necessarily what is actual factual and i think australian tourism has a big job to do in terms of convincing the world that not only are we reopened, but we're safe. I mean, we're one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. We've had very low incidence of COVID-19, if you look at us, against uh, against global benchmarks. And uh, all of that, you know, nature, um, you know, clean air, clean water, clean food, you know, hospitable people, all of that offering actually in the new 
COVID economy or new COVID world should be really compelling. But, uh, you know, we're going to have to compete very hard against many other markets who have really got out on the front foot and tried to, I guess, eat part of our lunch whilst we've continued to ensure that we're keeping everybody safe and perhaps not being as aggressive on reopening as some of our competitive um, competitive tourism players. Yeah, those are really good learnings, Simon. I, I think from this part of the world, you, you will see a surge. I think as soon as uh, Southeast Asian travellers are able to and the, the prices are, are, are amenable, that's one thing we're not too sure about yet is what flight prices are going to be and, and the access terms. But I think you will see a surge from this part of the region. So Simon, just before we close, it's, it's been incredibly tough two years. We've covered a lot of ground here. But as I alluded to at the start of of our discussion, two times that you've been on the show before, you've made pretty clear and very, very successful projections. So if you and I are talking together in a year's time, will Australia be bouncing back towards a tourism recovery? Okay, I'll I'll pull out my uh, punter's book. No, I'll pull out my crystal ball and have another go at it. Um, I, I think what's going to occur is this. I think we'll see really strong outbound travel of Australians doing outbound international travel over 2022, particularly when we get into mid-year. If if Europe can get through northern winter without being a cataclysmic event, I think you'll see so many Australians travel to Europe um, you know, in mid-next year. And I think you'll see Australia really reconnect with those Asian playgrounds or known destinations for us. And we segment a bit, but obviously, they're, they're, and it's not the cliche, but it's your Bali's, uh, it's your, it's your, obviously your Thailand, it's Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong and so forth. I, I really do think we'll see really strong outbound travel. There are so many Australians that really just want to get back and do those holidays that they were doing once, either once a year or once every two years or as part of a broader trip of a lifetime. I think there's no question about that. I think the other really interesting one is what's going to happen with the international markets, the inbound markets. And I think it's going to be a bit more of a sobering conversation. I'll go make a bit of a prediction that I actually do think that a market like uh, Singapore could end up becoming possibly our fourth largest um, international inbound market by this time um, next year. I think out of that market, you know, if you had Malaysia in there to cheat a little bit, I think that'll that'll work really well for us. The big issue for us is China. No one likes to talk about it, but just pre the pandemic. It was almost one in five inbound visitors to our country were, were Chinese nationals. It's obviously by far our biggest spending market uh, in terms of you know tourism receipts. Uh, it was one of the drivers why Australia on a per capita basis had the best yielding international market in the world. That's gone. The market's no longer currently there. And uh, a lot of that was, um, you know, um, FIT travellers. It was a lot of students, but there was a lot of FIT travellers in that as well and group travellers. So... I I I'm, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I do hope China's visitation really jumps back because it's going to be really important to us, particularly in some of our key regions, such as in far north Queensland in particular and the Gold Coast. But I do worry that that market might be gone um, for a while, and it's going to have to be a lot of work to be done. So that's probably my that's probably my predictions. I think I guess we'll have to wait wait and see how these cohorts return. That um, I'm. As you know, I'm an optimistic person, but uh, I think the inbound struggles are, are genuine, but I think the outbound opportunities are really going to be there. And then that in time, I hope with through low affairs and, and more aggressive marketing by our tourism authorities might, might start to see the pendulum start to swing back into 2023 and 2024 in terms of broader two-way travel recovery. Yeah, great summary, Simon. Absolutely, I would agree. Across the region, across Asia-Pacific, countries are starting to look at how they can really substitute that, that Chinese market. I was actually on a webinar a couple of days ago with an expert in Beijing who was saying that he doesn't think that the Chinese borders will reopen until towards the end of next year or perhaps even in 2023. 
and that's speculation, but he did actually give some pretty solid reasons for that. So, you know, that is something that everybody has to take note of. They do need to take note of it. And, and that's why I think the you know, the positives around Qantas's commitment to India, I, I think, are fantastic. I, in many ways, I don't think the, the, the Australian industry has not so much celebrated that, but really that's been acknowledged enough. That is a significant decision by the Qantas group to to, to have another go at the Indian market. And um, that... That has real opportunity for Australia and obviously will require us to, to look at that Indian inbound market, um, not with trepidation, but but opportunity. So, look, I mean, we're, in a, we're, in a, we're well-placed, um, but some of our traditional markets, um, most of our key inbound markets were very heavily hit by COVID or that they brought the drawbridge down. And I think that's that's the challenge for us is that from an inbound perspective is how do we sort of reopen those up and then supplement those with, with the emergent markets uh, through Southeast Asia and also the likes of India. Thanks, Simon. So that brings us to the end of this Australia special edition of the show. We hope that you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and your comments on everything we discussed with Simon or anything that we missed out. It's going to be an important market, so we'd love to hear your views. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show or on Twitter, SEA Travel Show. Meanwhile, as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, CastBox, Overcast, Podcast Addict, Stitcher and Amazon Music. Just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. So that's a wrap for today. And next week, we have part four of our Destination 2022 series, which we'll be talking with Ruth Franklin about the Maldives. Look forward to seeing you then.